0: Welcome to the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast It's November 7, 2019 and this is episode 683 Today I'm really pleased to be able to bring you an interview with photographer Ruben Krabber who has, on this day, released a new movie about one of his latest out-of-this-world projects called nebula i don't want to spoil it by providing too many details at this point so i just wanted to jump in before i play you the conversation and let you know that the images that we will talk about as well as a few of the show notes will be at mbp.ac 683 so please go over and follow there if you're listening on an iphone or something that you can see the chapter images they will be there as well, but otherwise, visit the blog and check out the work of Ruben Krabber. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So, Ruben, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's uh, it's a, an absolute pleasure, and uh, I've I've been looking forward to this for a while now. We've got three of your your signature shots to to talk about, and obviously, I'm I'm looking forward to getting into your latest work. But because you've got a a movie, a film coming out uh, very shortly. We're going to time this for the release of Nebula, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but we're going to build to that gradually through the show and let people know. First of all, uh, you know, talk a little bit about yourself. Where where did you uh, get your interest in photography from, and and all of
1: that? I started enjoying photography. Uh, as a teenager and I had seen my father shooting photos on an old film SLR and always found that to be a pretty cool thing to watch mm. sort of the magic of film and wondering what's all going on when he spins all of the dials. Mm. And later I got into photography to uh, shoot photos of friends on mountain bikes and on skis. Yeah. And then we, one of the friends picked up his dad's old SLR and then as soon as there was a dollar value attached to every single photo, then you had to actually make sure that every photo was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So it instantly made us all have to really sort of take things a bit more serious and choose how to ration those roles of film. Yeah. Um, and I took everything way too serious and ended up with an expensive ho- hobby at the end of high school. Mm. And then, uh, when all of the teachers are and teachers and parents are asking you, what are you going to do with your life? Then, um, my answer to just sort of get them off my back was, I'm going to go be a ski photographer. And <laughs> I said that for long enough that then at the end of high school, it had sort of manifested. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go do this. And I'm going to go try this out. <laughs> and I did a little bit of photography school, some uh, business education as well. And then moved into my van and drove west into the mountains and um, eventually ended up living in Whistler for a couple of years and Squamish after that, which are two ski towns near uh, Vancouver.
0: Yeah, I've heard of both of them. I've not skied. I, I haven't skied actually for well over probably the best side of 25 years now. So it's uh, I'm, I can't talk about the, you know, my own experience and the skiing. But of course, we're here to talk about the photography. So um, it's great that you've, you, um, obviously got into all of that stuff. I can totally relate about the, you know, watching, uh, an adult as a child, watching an adult with a camera. I had a similar experience with a friend's dad. I, I used to go on family holidays with one of my best friends. Well, my, probably my only best friend as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, and his, his dad had an old Zenit, a Russian, uh, SLR camera. And I used to love watching him work with that, and I'd occasionally he'd let me, he'd let me look through and and uh, you know twist the dials a bit, and so it was it was one of those things that uh, and like similar to you, an adult did that kind of got my it's one of my first um, experiences as I as I got into photography. You have not only developed a, obviously a profession as a photographer, um, but you've you've got a deep appreciation for the great outdoors and listening to where you grew up and all of that I can understand why but do you want to talk a little bit about that how you how you developed that love for the great outdoors
1: um it was just something that I inherited from parents who wanted to be out in the mountains Mm. um we would spend vacations and weekends often just heading out to the mountains as much as we could so that's naturally where I've always sort of felt happiest and that's where you know that you're making good use of your time, mm-hmm. and then now it's also where I get to sort of call my office, which is a really amazing treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still sort of surprising every once in a while to shake my head and think, like, ah, this is actually what I get to do for a job. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah,
0: I I can relate to that too. I I'm, I often. Say to you know, where I'm out in. I go to all sorts of places, uh, Antarctica and Namibia now, um, Greenland, Iceland, and all of these places. I, I I stand there, and at least once on every trip, I'll just I'll just stand in awe of the fact that I'm there as part of my my job. And and you know, I mean, it, I I actually I know I try to try to use the term work instead of job because as uh, i'm sure you've heard of david duchman uh, another uh, fellow canadian um he he often makes the the uh, you know talks about the difference as being a job is what you do for someone else um but your work it's like your life work you know we we call our photography our work so it's mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the fact that our work takes us to these places and gives us such amazing opportunities is is really uh it's it's one of the most beautiful things about being a a professional photographer Um, i I
1: totally agree i I think the other thing that i really love about it is also how it um it gives you special license like yeah you can get access to such amazing and unusual experiences one of the best is just when you when you travel and you're shooting something sometimes people will invite you into their home in a way that like you're never gonna just stop a tourist and say, "Hey, come look at what my life is like." But for some reason, if there's a camera in that situation, you can get invited into these very intimate and uh, very human moments, and that's yeah. that's the thing that like you can't you can buy a trip to Antarctica, but you can't buy your way into someone's home and experience their culture. That's uh, something yeah. unique.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I I spoke with Rick Salmon a few weeks ago, and we we talked about this very thing. Uh, you know it's like it's like permission the camera gives you permission to do things that you wouldn't normally get a a chance to do and um we talked about uh my my recent experience as well every year now I'm, i'm going to the the himba people in namibia and we have we can't we don't understand more than a few of each other's words but we can we have an amazing cultural experience through the camera really you know we we start without the camera but once it comes in we've we've built such a relationship that it kind of just helps to to um you know to make the experience even more special
1: mm-hmm. i like that the the word permission well, as soon as you said it i was actually thinking of a different way of that is that it also give the camera gives you permission to yourself in a lot of ways oh, absolutely, uh, permission yeah. to um maybe act outside of what is normally your personality traits and Maybe go investigate something even further or talk to people that you wouldn't have otherwise so it's uh it's a two way street with that word and what it means
0: exactly yeah and that's uh that's something that I recalled as I was preparing to talk with you about you know your amazing photography with you you talk about the the telescopes that like the ones you see on the top of a mountain and um, and I recalled a, a conversation with a friend Iberian Perillo and um, has you know one of one of the the best voices i think in in our, on yeah, in the podcast in or the podosphere and uh, we were talking many years ago and i, I about more than anything about uh, portraits and i've never been a really big um and well i, I wouldn't I, I can't say this now because i i do more portraits than i ever have but i i used to have a lot of um inhibitions and anxiety about shooting people and i remember saying in one of our early conversations that uh i i'm fine with shooting people as long as i can do it with a 600 millimeter from three blocks (laughs) away and and so that you know that that now i mean i'm shooting people with a 50 millimeter and and i i'm doing things much more intimately and so yeah i mean without doubt a lot of that is comes from the permission that uh, the camera gives us. And like you say, it's a definitely a two way street.
1: And what, what do you think gave you that permission? Was that just a moment where you decided you wanted to do that? Or was there an experience that changed your ability to shoot portraits and feel comfortable in that space?
0: You, you know, I think, and it's all linked, but I think the biggest thing was actually becoming a professional photographer and putting myself in a position where it was my job to get those photos and, and right. again that that's it it's like it's this now is something that you you don't you not only have permission to do but you're required to do and mm-hmm. and I think that that was part of it and I, I got into f- shooting people uh, more as as part of my part of my uh, work but I also I started to travel to places where the culture and the people that were living that culture every day, were such a big part of it that it was no longer something that I could ignore. I, I still don't photograph uh, on my doorstep so much. I, I live in Tokyo, it's a 13 million people city. And I waste it in many, many ways because I don't go out and do all of the street photography that so many here do. I, I'm predominantly, you know, when I get time to do my own work, I go into the, into the wilderness, I wanna shoot nature and the wildlife. So Tokyo is really for me just my base, but then when I go to somewhere like Morocco or Namibia, and there are people there that are so much in such a different culture, that it it sort of it it pulls me in and attracts me in a different way. Um, And of course, if you're a visitor to Japan, the Japanese people are that way. But I mean, I'm actually a Japanese citizen now. I've I've lived here so long. That mm-hmm. that newness is not really here. So for me, it's just another person down the street. So I think it's the travel um, that that and the you know the completely different culture that pulls me into to the you know the portraiture when traveling more than anything.
1: Yeah, it it's funny how familiarity can make it so hard to actually um, work creatively. That once you've been in a space for a while, like I remember my perception. When I first started photographing in the Whistler area, to the way that I go move through it now, where I'm I'm so used to it that it's all just location. It doesn't feel like destination anymore,
0: yeah.
1: and that really affects your ability to see creatively, unless you really like consciously try to break yourself out of that mold and realize that all human experiences are have potential to be very interesting, or all all areas are really. Yeah. potentially very interesting
0: yeah yeah i mean i i think if if i had the time i would probably shoot on my doorstep a little bit more um but you know and i i do have some images here that i've done um just of the local people but for me the biggest attraction is what is when i'm out and about but yeah it's it's all great stuff though and and i uh i think that it's a really good point about the permission you gave yourself permission To do some amazing projects over the last four years or so. And I want to jump in and start talking about those. Let let's start with your eclipse photo, which was, I believe, from 2015. Tell us a little bit about how the eclipse photo actually looking looking through, thinking about this, you're I think I saw that your Aurora shot was your first one that gave you the ideas that you know that that sort of snowballed on. Um pardon the pun. Um so It, is that correct?
1: So um, to orient the per- people who, who haven't looked at these shots yet, uh, it's a three part series of uh, photographs that I've created that um, have both skiing and some sort of celestial event going on. Hmm. And the first one was this Aurora shot. Okay. So it's a skier with Aurora Borealis in the sky. And then the eclipse project was the next one. And that happened in 2015. And then the most recent one is called Nebula, and that one I just finished last February. Yeah. Um, so, so, so- I,
0: I'm actually I'm going to have the images on the blog post, so pe- people will be able to go and see the images uh, that you've you've kindly provided for this. So, uh, you know, with with the the visual there as well. Um, let's let's start with the Nebula one. Then we'll do this chronologically. I mean, so when was uh, sorry not Nebula? Alright. Um, the Aurora shot. When was that? If Eclipse was 2015, was that like 2013 uh, or so? Aurora,
1: yeah, Aurora was in 2013. And um, I had seen a photograph by a different ski photographer named Grant Gunderson. Mm. And he had done a, a star trail shot with a skier um, frozen with a flash. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, and he got the cover of Ski Magazine with that image, mm-hmm. I realized that there was something really cool there of sort of compressing one of these really beautiful um, types of images that we can see quite often into action sport and putting them into the same space. Because um, for people who live in Northern Canada, seeing the aurora is something that is sort of normal. It's yeah. something that's just overhead when the conditions are right. Yeah. Um, So I pitched that concept to a ski magazine and they said, yeah, go for it. And I said, well, you know that there's like a huge chance of failure. And they're like, well, that sounds like a pretty good story. (laughs) So uh, we went up to the Yukon in the middle of February and made this ski trip happen in a beautiful mountain range called the Tombstones, which for the landscape photographer is one of the most beautiful places in Canada. Mm. Um, and we got to do some really scary skiing with some really bad avalanche conditions. Mm. And, um, one of the nights we were cooking breakfast in the dark and the Northern lights started coming on. So we skied out of camp and spent a couple hours, uh, having this cat and mouse game, chasing the, Aurora back and forth across the slope. Mm. But if you've ever photographed the Aurora or if you've watched a time-lapse video, you'll see that it's sort of like this elusive snake and it ha- it doesn't mm. respond to anything that you can predict. Yeah. It just moves naturally and fades and disappears and then comes back. So yeah. I'd be setting up the flash in one position and my camera in one position, and then all of a sudden I'd sweep across the sky and have to reset. So I ended up, um, I think, shooting maybe 10 frames over the course of three hours and only one of them really ended up working. But why's yeah. all you need in photography.
0: Yeah. And, and that's your signature shot then, I guess the,
1: you yeah.
0: know, you talk about the, um, the avalanche conditions. I mean, the skier here, the, these are, these are some skilled, skilled guys you're working with. I mean, they, it looks like, uh, I, I don't know what, what the, um, the slope would be there, but it's, it's like sixty. De- looks like sixty degrees or something ridiculous. Um, so I mean, you what you, I, I noticed from obviously I, I've watched your I've you've given me a sneak preview of your nebula film, and I see in there that you're in contact with these guys with radios. But so I mean, walk us through this process. I mean, you, you had this guy on the side of a mountain, and you were you were talking to him and say, okay, go and stuff like that.
1: Right. So any of these photographs, they ended up end up being choreographed shots that encapsulate something that I'm trying to show off. So they are a little bit synthetic, but, um, in order to organize ski photography into an aesthetic, um, image, it it takes a lot of control, or at least that's the method that I found to create the best kind of images Hmm. rather than just sitting on the side of the hill and hoping that some confluence of space and athlete is going to just end up looking right. Yeah. Um, but uh, we have to constantly be talking about safety throughout all of these shoots. Absolutely. And um, it's easy to also get sort of distracted by what you're shooting and then concentrate less on safety. So you're sort of like constantly reminding yourself. It's almost like you you start to have this maybe like 10-minute 10, 10 timer in your head that just every once in a while you're like, okay, safety okay, what are we doing? What, what's going on? Because you can very quickly – Um, make a couple unconscious moves that could be fatal in the places that we work in. I'm sure. Um, So in both Eclipse and in Nebula, the most recent two, uh, we we had radio contact to be able to help coordinate what's going on and understand where each other are. Mm. And for both of those, it was extremely hard because in Eclipse, you're staring at the sun. Even Mm. though the moon's covering it up, it's still the sun. So Mm. I'm staring at a ridge in the sun trying to figure out exactly where to line up this person and the Mm. skiers on the ridge they don't know where at what point in time they're um standing in front of the sun or not in front of the sun so it's a it's a frustrating game right at the end when you've dealt with all of this technical stuff and you're lining up all of these things and the show must happen at this exact moment and then you still have this trouble of just figuring out like where is someone standing yeah. and it's,
0: it's well, still really I mean, difficult moving on to the eclipse shot i mean and i, I almost don't want to the, the ski the first one with the aurora is 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 amazing as well but i mean it, this you've got a, a whole bunch of things that you know in, in all of these i mean the aurora perhaps less so but you've got the the moon in front of the sun and the skier and like you said i mean I, i've i've photographed eclipses like you say i mean you're looking into the sun and it's it's not easy to sort of orient where you where you are in in uh, relation to everything else but then you've you've managed to get it on the side of a mountain and this you've got the skier coming down through and all of the uh, the snow sort of uh you know I, I don't know what i was i want to say blowing up but sort of being kicked up by the skier and it it's all it's all in silhouette and comes together absolutely beautifully. So, I mean, obviously you've you've got a, a lot of pressure as you're, and <laughs> I, as I was watching Nebler, I, I, I heard the F word a few, a few times <laughs> as, I, as you're trying to pull it all together. So I understand that there's a lot of pressure there. But did, did you ever at any point think that um, for the eclipse shot, say, that it just wasn't going to work? Or were you pretty confident that you were going to pull it off?
1: Uh, well, it was, there was a, a lot of lead time on that trip where we were, um, also just skiing for this, uh, photo and video shoot for Solomon. So we were scouting for a location for a long time. And, um, the way that the snow and, uh, landscape works up there is that unfortunately snow doesn't act, doesn't accumulate on ridgelines very well. Mm. Uh, in some mountain ranges that does work in other, ra- other places it doesn't. So we were having an extremely hard time finding any place on this entire island that would be in track with the eclipse and would have snow on the edge of a ridge. Mm. So we ended up um, never actually having a skier up in that area until the moment that the eclipse was starting. We just had to put all of our chips on that ridge and say, this is our best bet. We'll see what happens. And it happened to be one of the few places that there was potential for that photograph. So hmm. right up until the moment of the eclipse, I was sort of expecting that the best thing we might get is like a high five beside the sun, which would look pretty cool, but was definitely not the kind of aim of the project. Hmm. Then as soon as this eclipse actually starts happening, it's just such a blur. It's moving so fast that you don't really know if you're gonna succeed or fail. You're just scrambling to do as much as you can, the best you can, and communicate properly. Hmm. And if it goes well, you're lucky. And if not, you too bad. Yeah. It obviously
0: came together and this, this photograph has, has won you awards and obviously um, really thrust your career forward. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, the concept. How, how did you actually come up with the idea of, because obviously you've got the, the Aurora shot behind you now um, and you're, you're starting to think about what you could do next. Can you tell us a little bit about that process, how, how you came up with the ideas and stuff?
1: Um, well, referencing back to that shot of Grant Gunderson where he has the star trails, oh. I had uh, is, when I first saw that shot, then I just sort of went through a list of thinking what kind of things are there what, that you could remix into this concept. And immediately I thought of both the um, aurora and the eclipse. Okay. So then the next part of the process, it ends up becoming... Um, A lot of desk work trying to figure out how this might potentially work. Mm. So um, NASA has these maps that will show you when and where the next eclipse is going to be or the next hundred eclipses. Mm. So I looked at this and figured out, okay, well, these three of them in my lifetime are going to happen over snow. So one actually just happened this summer in Chile. Mm. And there was the one in Svalbard that uh, we did shoot. And then the next time that there's a solar eclipse that works over snow, it's like 2026. Mm. So still have to wait quite a bit longer if someone wants to try this kind of shot again. So I wrote down in my calendar on that day, this is when it's possible. And then I also wrote in my calendar at the beginning of the fall when you normally pitch concepts to ski companies Mm. that I should be pitching that one. And Somehow, um, Solomon thought it was a good idea and mm. I got a phone call from them saying like, we're really interested in this idea. And my f- initial reaction was to try to talk them down. I mm. was just saying, like, no, this is not a good idea. <laughs> it's, do you, do you have any real, do you know at all that like 60% of the time in Svalbard, it's cloudy?
0: Yeah. Like
1: the the odds are not in your favor whatsoever. Mm. And they're like, yeah, that's what we like. So, um, that was the crazy process of getting it started, and then after that, um, use some computer software to figure out where in the sky this is going to be. Use yeah. Google Earth to figure out what the landscape looks like.
0: On your Nebula shot, the skier is in the same color clothing as the the not. I keep saying Nebula, the Aurora. In the Aurora mm-hmm. shot, your the skier is in the same uh, color clothing as the Aurora. Was that by design or? um lucky accident
1: a little bit of both um the skier Tobin had several jackets on the trip one's like your outside jacket for um, waterproofing and the next one's your um, layer for warmth Mm. and we were standing in camp seeing the northern lights overhead and we're like oh I I guess we actually have to make this decision he holds up too so it could have been red and green and then we looked at that and are like ah that looks a bit too Christmassy like if like hold the jacket overhead and then compare it to the northern lights you are like mm. this doesn't i think that would look silly mm. so green and green well maybe that'll look cool and yeah. since then a lot of people have identified that as something that they like about the shot as well
0: yeah i i absolutely i i thought it was there was at least some thought behind that um but that's good to know that you're you know that you're thinking about those sort of things and it definitely adds to the success of the
1: images and so, then we carry, we carry forward that idea as well for Nebula, trying to make sure that there is color consistency across the photograph rather than having a green jacket in the end for Nebula.
0: Yeah, so I've just switched to that and see that you've got the same purple color on the skier than you do in the, uh, obviously in the clouds of the Nebula, so... Yeah. Great thinking on this stuff. You, you obviously, um, really, I mean, obviously you can't do this sort of photography without putting a lot of thought into it, but the fact that you, you're lining up celestial bodies with the, uh, you know, a a point on the earth and having the, the extra sort of mental bandwidth to think about the color of the guy's jacket is, is a, another great thing to, to, you know, to, that sets your work apart. Um, so, I mean, Nebula. This is, like you say, you, you pulled this off in February this year. I think you said. Mm-hmm. So, tell us about this project. And you know, I've I've seen your movie, and we're, I'm I will obviously put a link in the show notes. And it, I mean, where will it will it be released on uh, Vimeo or? Uh, yeah, it, it's yeah? going to be
1: it's going to be on Vimeo, and the place to be able to find it is at nebula-film dot com. Or if you search for my name in Nebula, I'm sure Google is going to figure that out mm. quite quickly here.
0: So, well, um, I'll, I'll I'll do that groundwork and put it in the post. So I'll make sure that there's a link to the video in the post. Um, but I uh, I think that you know, obviously, people are going to want to go and um, go and watch your film. Um, but tell us about the image a little bit more. I know that, you know, right now we, we you know, to go through the process a little bit, talk, talk us through that a little bit. What You know, what's behind this shot?
1: Um, so I didn't uh, have this idea immediately after Eclipse, but I had started thinking um, one of my tools for creativity is I like to ask what if questions and just sort of imagine um, the potential of any sort of, silliness. So I was thinking, what if I shot a action sport photo with one of the big massive scientific telescopes that they put on top of mountains? Hmm. So I emailed a bunch of those places and they told me to stop wasting their time. <laughs> and then uh, I started looking further into this and fi- finding out what kind of astrophotography people do from earth. And there's a whole culture of people doing this type of astrophotography. And this isn't sort of like the classic shot of the Milky Way that we've seen, which is very wide and Mm. has a very beautiful look. This is Instead, it's uh, looking with a very, very long lens at a very small piece of sky and then using a long exposure to bring out the light that's just hiding a little bit beyond what our eyes can pick up. Mm. And then by doing that, uh, you can see these really, really massive uh, celestial objects that are out there. Um, and then that led into a long learning process of trying to figure out how to do traditional astrophotography, learning how to do a bit of that, and then trying to figure out how am I going to put the freeze frame, uh, that you need of action sport photography. That's going to be like a thousandth of a second, a really fast exposure. How are you going to fit that in with this long exposure? Mm -hmm. And when you do this long exposure with a long lens pointing at the sky, you have to have the camera also sitting on a special mount that spins in the opposite direction that the Earth is spinning. Yeah. So that the camera will track the piece of sky that it's pointing at. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> trying to figure out this Frankenstein setup, and from what I can tell, people haven't done this kind of thing too much, and mm. sort of for good for good reason. It's pretty ridiculous. It's expensive, and it's genre blending and silly. But um, it was a it was a big long process, and that yeah. was why it also took a failure on the way towards success as well as had to go out, shoot some stuff. And I thought it was all going to work and I found 10 things that didn't work. So then I could use another year, solve those problems and then address that the next year. Hmm.
0: I think it's great that your Nebula film has the, the initial failure in there. Um, (laughs) And did you ever figure out, I I don't want to, let's assume that the, 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 the listeners have, run off to watch your film first um, and they know what I'm about to ask. So I don't, if you haven't already watched the film, go and watch it now and then come back to the audio um, because I'm going to spoil uh, part of what happened on the first attempt if you don't do it in that order. Um, but did you ever figure out what happened with the, the flash in the on your first attempt?
1: Right. Uh, on the first attempt, what we were trying to do is use uh, a function on pocket wizards, where um, the first one can trigger the second one, and the second one can trigger the third one, and then the third one can tr- trigger the fourth one. Mm. And by using this daisy chain of these uh, pocket wizards, you can relay a uh, message much further, mm. because um, the distance that those things are reliable is not that long. Mm. Um, so by doing this, you could relay a message forward and get a flash to fire still within a normal synchronization on your camera. Yeah. But um, the trouble with that is that when you're shooting in minus 20, the voltage that's getting put out by these things, I think, is part of what was happening. Is that the they're not receiving as much power, so then their ability to send that message gets uh, damaged, mm. and then the consistency of the flashing uh, just sort of fell off precipitously. So we ended up getting zero photographs from that night. Like Uh. nothing turned out whatsoever. Um, And then I spent a (laughs) lot... Then I had to figure out, okay, well, what what can work here? So I spent some time like looking around on uh, eBay trying to figure out if I could get like a 500-meter long uh, flash sync cord. (laughs) Could you make that kind of thing? Hmm. And then, well, you run into problems where the... This is actually a problem that uh, I found from people who do the um, music design for big stadium shows, that there's a, a loss of voltage over the distance of the wire. Mm. So that wasn't going to work as well. Mm. So that's why we ended up going with continuous light at the end. Is this, it was the only way to figure out how to have some sort of um, confidence that we could create an image.
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah. I, I wondered if it was perhaps the the power of the batteries. Um, I've I've shot in um, you know well below with flash in well below zero, and I ended up using the um, is it what is it the NiCad batteries the not the regular triple um, A's or whatever the I I use them in my GPS now. There's there's a specific type of battery that just doesn't really uh, drop in power when it gets cold. So maybe, maybe that would have been an option, but it's, uh, I'm sure you've thought through all of that as well.
1: Even, even with the power working, unfortunately, just the consistency of them seems to be a little bit of an issue when you're, when you're messing around with their distance range. Uh So yeah, well, it just didn't seem like it's worth another shoot.
0: Yeah. That's all behind you now. Anyway, you figured it out. You, um, you, you ended up doing a, uh, like a multiple exposure then, right? Mm-hmm. So exactly. So what did you, it, is the camera moved between the two or it was just you, it looked from the, from the, your, your film that you were, you literally just did the camera was on your, um, your apparatus that was moving it with the, the earth's rotation, but you didn't actually reframe. You just did two separate exposures, right?
1: Uh, there's two separate exposures and I think there was a slight, um, move of the camera from, uh, where it was to a little bit lower because I I, I ended up, um, I ended up screwing up photos in the moment as well. Uh Um, so then when the skier is re hiking up the slope to be able to reset, um, I had to harmonize where the, the skiing could happen and then where the. Um, nebula was. So I had to move the camera slightly in between the shots. I see. And then the one quick one for action was shot first, and then this 20 second exposure to fill in the stars after that. Mm.
0: So, what focal length are you working at here for the Nebula? I mean, it, it's pretty big in your shot. Uh,
1: that's shooting with a 400 millimeter Nikon. I think it was the F4 from Nikon. Mm. And So this Orion Nebula is out there in the sky, and it's hiding in plain sight. It's actually roughly the size of the moon. So it's it's sort of a little bit too bad that our eyes just don't work quite well enough in the dark to be able to see this. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, we could all just look at the Orion Nebula when we're just walking around outside. And our perception of just the entire world around us would be drastically different if we could see in that way that the camera just can't.
0: I I honestly didn't realize that the that Orion was as big as that. It's amazing that you know you've you've shown us something here that like you say I mean the naked eye doesn't see it. And I I'm obviously I'm I'm completely uh, I understand how this stuff works but I I just didn't realize it was that big. And so it's uh, you know I think I'm going to be pointing my uh, my own camera up into the sky towards Orion when the, the you know the skies get a bit clearer again. Uh, yeah,
1: for the for the enthusiast if you want to you could go get uh, go get a grainy shot of it if you wanted with your like 70 to 200 mm. 28 and just crank your ISO all the way to the point where it's going to look crazy, but you could just go out there and point the uh, the camera at the Orion's belt and mm. frame that in frame and just below it is the nebula mm. and you'll be able to see what is there and it it it'll be a pretty cool experience even if you're going to get a bit of motion blur in the shot and it's not going to look quite right mm. it it's cool to sort of interact with something that's there cuz otherwise we always there's this disconnect of the things that we can see that like NASA hands us on the internet mm. but we it does you're just like yeah you shot that with like a 2 billion dollar telescope so mm. wh- like whatever <laughs> Where yeah. this stuff is closer to our own reality than we might think.
0: Yeah, I I definitely didn't realize it was as big. As, I've looked at the at the at Orion as a kid for, through a telescope, but because it was you know it was just the naked eye through a what's essentially a relatively small uh, aperture in these things. So I you've you've opened my eyes to some some possibility here as well. I didn't realize that it was as as big as that. So definitely going to give it a try you've you've obviously you've done these three images you've uh you've you've thrust yourself into a a, a position that is ob- obviously helping you to to pay the bills and um and you know have have plenty of success in your field is there anything that you can you know maybe not another um similar shot but what what's next you know the, in your uh, your photographic life can you think of uh, any, anything else that's coming up
1: uh, well, the the two friends who helped make the movie, um, we've collaborated on different projects in the past and we're now sort of stepping out as an actual production company. Mm. So we're going to be working on some projects in the coming year, hopefully uh, doing branded content and some narrative storytelling yeah. because I really enjoy the process of crafting story and um, giving some photography is really fun to make this like single moment that works really well, but it's mm-hmm. not, it's not quite the storytelling tool that filmmaking is. Yeah. So we're looking to combine some of those things. Yeah. And then I've also been trying to pick up surfing and it's just fun being terrible at something. Again, <laughs> just like just being so treacherously bad that you're like the, you're the kind of person who like, you can tell that you're getting looks while mm-hmm. you're doing all kinds of things wrong. So mm-hmm. that's also been providing a whole bunch of fun
0: i I can thoroughly relate to both of those things i, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, obviously I, as I was watching the your your movies the the production is is first class and your the way you've put together I mean the titles in nebula and everything with the the rays of light um, they it's it's completely professional you know I, I realize that you are a professional this is what you do. But the the movie and the the storytelling behind that as well is is such uh, high class that, that I I thought that probably that was something that you were you were going to be mo- moving into a little bit more as well um, and so yeah that's great.
1: Um, well then I I can't take any credit for uh, the filmmaking side of stuff. That was uh, a large amount of that was Jay Tressler mm. um, and um, there's two things that I want to highlight in that yeah. uh, we got um, we got really lucky that the, uh, the action scene that we have in the movie, we were actually shooting on, uh, one of the newest red cameras. I can't remember if it was the dragon, but it was like one of the newest ones that can shoot in night. So then we were able to actually bring into the film, the look of, uh, stars and that, uh, would have been really hard to do otherwise. Mm. And then when you, pointed out the rays of light. That's actually just a cool throwback to what I started the uh, podcast with you talking about, because that's actually my dad's old slide projector.
0: I, so, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It looks it's great. Part- <laughs> it was pretty fun to play with. They're they're pretty cool, magical machines and they, a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in them too. Yeah.
0: I've got one. I, I, it's probably not quite as old as, as your dad's looking at, you know, from the looking at what I've seen in the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. but i've i've got one and i I mean even the dust on it it looks it's sort of archaic but um it it really ties in well with the the timelessness of the photography that you're doing you know it just so happens that you're doing it now in 2013 15 19 whatever and you're using digital but that sort of that feel of of going back to to the film sort of you know the need to project film um and stuff like that it kind of all ties in with the timelessness of the the celestial bodies and you know i mean these things just don't change very often do they and so yeah. it's uh it, it really all all works well um, you've done a, a obviously a great job of of all of the things that you've we've talked about today can you give us a little bit of advice for any young photographers just coming out anything that you think um they might need might need to do getting into uh, photography as a profession in 2019
1: um the one of my favorite things that i like to talk about is choosing where you uh pull your inspirations from um it's good to have uh your hero photographers who do the kind of photography that you like. Mm. But if you look at that kind of photography too much, you're you're only going to be able to make derivative photography of the thing that they do. Mm. It'll only end up looking sort of similar to that person that you are interested in. Mm. So draw your inspiration, your sources of ideas from many other places. Mm. And, um, also look at what might be your other um like your side passions to photography so for me i'm i really enjoy all of the scientific side of things Mm -hmm. so that's what i end up remixing into my photography and that's what makes my work potentially unique Mm -hmm. um so being sort of true and honest to yourself and concentrating on that is extremely useful Mm -hmm. the another good example for that is uh National Geographic's photographer, Paul Nicklin. Mm -hmm. He grew up in um, the Arctic of Canada and then he became a biologist and then finally he became a photographer. So he knows so much about that thing and all about what's going on so he can, uh, what's going on in the environment so that he knows when the right point is to actually be trying to shoot plankton rather than polar bears because they're the most significant part of the story. Mm -hmm. So concentrating on um understanding what that is in your about yourself is going to be extremely useful for uh, developing who you are and what your voice is in photography.
0: Excellent advice. So yeah, brilliant. I uh, I want to finish by just asking you if you know, I'll obviously put links into the into the show notes for this uh, conversation, but just verbally, can you tell us where people can catch up with you and see your work?
1: Yeah, uh, my website is RubenKraba.com and I'm on Instagram as at Ruben Um And then the film, like we mentioned, is at nebula-film.com and that's all I've got to say. As mm-hmm. well as thank you to everyone who worked on this project because unfortunately it's uh, me talking about a film about me while I'm shooting a photo that I'm interested in, but it has a lot of people working very, very hard to make the whole thing come to life. So yeah. well, I need it- to acknowledge that. It looks great, and
0: and it's it's very cool that you that you do acknowledge that. Um, I think we all we're all where we are uh, through the help of the people that um, that live you know around us and support us. So great stuff that you're you're humble enough to say that. And uh, I I just want to finish then with congratulating you on these three images, and especially your your recent one, which is still new. Um, they're, they're absolutely beautiful. And thank you for spending the time to, to walk us through these today. And uh, good luck with uh, everything that you do in the future. I'm sure you've got a, a very bright future in front of you. Thank you, Ruben. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. So as I mentioned in the introduction, if you haven't already, please do go over to the blog to check out Ruben's Images And that is at mbp.ac slash 683. Thanks very much for listening today. If you enjoy this podcast, please share a link with your friends. Subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast program to ensure uninterrupted delivery. If you have a moment to rate the podcast or leave us a review in iTunes, that helps to keep us relevant in the huge number of podcasts out there now. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter and links to everything that I'm up to are at martinbaileyphotography.com. so do drop by and take a look. I'll be back next week with another episode, but in the meantime, you take care and have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye.